is a humorous movie. It's Hollywood, but it's nevertheless pretty funny. It's called Support Your Local Sheriff. In it, the new sheriff, played by a young James Garner, sets out to clean up the town. So he first arrests a man for killing another guy in a gunfight. The bad guy faked out the other guy and he drew first. Now the town had been at the very edge of chaos because of a sudden growth of greedy prospectors chasing a gold rush. Thefts, violence, lewd behavior, murders are, as befits a comedy for the most part, just alluded to or made to be hilarious. But they were everywhere. So the new sheriff starts to clean up the town. There's a great little scene where the accused murderer, after a failed escape attempt, comments to the sheriff that he really enjoyed the town before you came and ruined everything. (laughs) Well, Jesus came and ruined everything. You see, before him, it was easy. If you were a Jew or friend of Jews, you were a good guy, a white hat kind of guy. You were anything other than a Jew or God-fearer. You were a bad guy, complete with a black hat or toga or something. But when Jesus came, life got, in one sense, a little more complicated. It used to be so easy. The people of God lived by rules. Everybody knew who they were because they lived by the rules. You lived by the rules, you're a person of God. You don't, you're not. So simple. And it's not that the rules were bad rules, but one was supposed to live by the rules because they worshipped God. Many, maybe most, Jews lived by the rules not because they loved God and saw themselves as his people, but because we're Americans and that's how Americans live. Well, Israelites. And that's how Israelites live. Not like those stinking Romans. A good Jew followed the rules, 613 of them, as defined by the Jewish rulers and teachers of Jesus' day. We've often mentioned the Jewish leaders and teachers' penchant for Sabbath rules, but there were many others, things like no getting drunk, no womanizing, no cheating, no fraternizing with people who do these things, going to the temple at the right times, you know, things any good American should do. But what they failed to consider, and what their leaders and teachers failed to address, was why? (laughs) Why did they live as they did? So when Jesus came and ruined, changed everything, they couldn't understand why it had changed, and certainly not that things needed to change. So they refused to change and fought against anyone who wanted to implement these changes. You can imagine their thoughts about someone like Paul, who taught others to ignore the rules and focus on life in Christ through the Spirit, and you'll just naturally live the right way. (laughs) You can imagine what they thought about Jesus Christ. He said, be born again in the Spirit, and he will change you from within. Living by rules won't be needed anymore. Why do we live as we live? Americans, that is. Why do Americans live as they do? In case you haven't been paying attention for the last 30 years or so, America is no longer a Christian nation. 
But many people still pride themselves in living a good life. They aren't those kind of people. (laughs) And yet they don't know why they live like they do. And they get irritated when we point that out. (laughs) They get irritated because the truth is they aren't good. They are enemies of the cross of Christ. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Two kinds of leaders and teachers. Those the Philippian believers are to imitate those whom they should avoid, those living the new way of the Spirit, those living by the old way of hard and fast rules. Two kinds of leaders and teachers with two very different destinies. Glorious transformation, destruction. Two kinds of leaders and teachers with two different masters, a savior or their own bellies, their own base desires. All of which points to why each lives as they live, real life based on real hope or artificial forced lives fixated on rules, which Paul equates to temporary temporal titillations. The very things the rules say not to do. By the time of Christ, Israel was no longer a believing nation. There were lots and lots of people who truly believed in the living creator God and sought to live for him in true righteousness. But most of the leaders only gave lip service to belief. All their focus was on the rules. And the bulk of the people lived like Jews are supposed to live, but without any reason. And, as hard as it is to swallow, that was good news. God knew what he was doing. America is no longer a Christian nation. For sure, there are lots of people who truly believe in the living creator God. And many leaders still give lip service to Christianity, but only as a lifestyle. They don't believe. And yet, most Americans want to live good lives. But for what reason? America is no longer a Christian nation. And in spite of the ache in my heart, I have to tell you, this is good news. (laughs) God really does know what he's doing. And some of it is made clear in this passage. So let's look at it in detail and see if we can discover it. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Who were these enemies of the cross of Christ? Well, the Philippians knew. Paul said he had often warned them about these people, so they already knew who they were. We, on the other hand, are left to wonder. The description makes them sound pretty bad, like some of those people, ones that even good Americans, rather good Israelites, wouldn't have anything to do with. Drinkers, carousers, cheaters. 
But that doesn't make any sense. Think of who's reading this. This is Paul's church. These are Paul's guys. Do we really think that they would be led astray by obvious sinners? A believer has to be pretty far gone in the way of sinning to be sucked in by obvious enemies of the cross like that. No, it's leaders and teachers that look like they might be good that are the most dangerous. Earlier, Paul had written to another church, one that didn't follow him as close as the Philippians. Some guys had come in trying to convince this other church to stop listening to Paul. They said that they were apostles of Christ and the church had to listen to them and give them lots of money. But consider what Paul has to say about them. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. They played by the rules, mostly, but for all the wrong reasons. It's when evil men look like good ones that they are the most dangerous. Why is, for instance, Mormonism a greater threat to Christian belief than Islam or Buddhism? Because it's designed in hell to look like the real thing. Many people are led astray by this religion, the leaders of whom are enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. But there wasn't any Mormonism then, so that can't be what Paul's talking about, right? Sort of. We do know that within a couple centuries of Paul's writing, the major errors of Mormonism were being fought by the early church fathers. For instance, some taught that any man can become a god, just like Jesus, something Mormonism teaches. This means, of course, that there would be multiple gods, whereas biblical Christianity contends that there is only one god eternally existent in three persons. There are great many other disparities between Mormon belief and Christian belief. But they look so good. They live such good lives. They take such good care of each other. They follow the rules so well. And yes, they disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, just like their father. You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus said that to the Jewish leaders not terribly long before they killed him. <laughs> and if we're right, these are the same group of people Paul is warning about with tears. There have been many other groups over the centuries that latch on to biblical words and images, but in reality serve themselves, not the Savior. Who were these teachers about whom Paul was warning? It has to be people who look like they are righteous, not blatant enemies of the cross. No, much worse, those who disguise themselves as angels of light. Why else would Paul be in tears about this? It seems probable that these are those who opposed Paul, those he mentioned clear back in chapter 1, who were hoping to cause him trouble when he was under arrest. Jews who caused Paul trouble by preaching Christ, even though they were in opposition to him. So think of it. They glory in what Paul rejected in their pedigree, their DNA, 
in their learning, in the effort they expend, in their achievement of perfection, as they measure it, that is to say, in their living by the rules as they define them. Can you imagine what they would think of Paul's description of them? <laughs> like we've been saying, the language Paul uses is that which would describe morally lax people. Oh, we would never behave like that. We're good Jews. We're good Americans. The words Paul uses would be a slap in the face to any good Jew for sure. But when those Philippian believers were looking at these people dressed up like servants of righteousness, maybe they needed shocking words like Paul used to make them realize just how very dangerous these guys are. Maybe when Americans look at Mormonism and all the other Christian wannabe religions, they need shocking words to help them understand how very evil these belief systems are. These are not people born of the Spirit. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Interesting to me, Paul starts with their eventual demise. When we consider anyone or anything, it's good to keep in mind where it all ends up. Some time ago, I briefed a study that gave the profile of an average street-running drug dealer in one of our major metropolitan areas, I believe it was New York, I can't remember. There was lots of interesting information, but the one that shocked me the most was the average age at time of death for these street drug dealers, 16, 16. When someone starts smoking dope before they even make their teens, yeah, no one's surprised when they become meth addicts, right? The kid that slept around with three different girls, of course he's going to drop the next girl like a hot potato when she gets pregnant. But we're not talking about those kind of people. These are nice people. They really seem to do good. In fact, they do do good. But their end is destruction. Why? Well, to start, their God is their belly. Okay, what does that mean? It means the real reason they do good is their own good. I mean, but wait, isn't it, isn't it good for us to be doing good? Yes, but what's the goal? What's the reason? If one's own good is their goal, then the good they have done wasn't really good at all. It's all about the heart. What's the first of the Ten Commandments? Don't have any other gods before me. What's well, a heart issue? What's the last commandment? Don't covet. That's absolutely a heart issue. All of the Ten Commandments are supposed to be heart issues. But by the time of Jesus, the Jewish leaders had turned them into rules about being good. Be a good American, and America will be good to you. So people do good to get good, and to their shame, they pat themselves on the back for it. They glory in their shame. And wait, isn't this kind of obvious? Why can't they see what's going on? Because their minds are set on the things of this earth. What do I get for what I do? But our citizenship is in heaven. All this talk about what's wrong isn't really about what's wrong. It's about what's right. The believer, Paul says, should have his mind set on that which is far above the very best this world has to offer. What's the best thing we can get in this world? I mean, seriously, what is the best 
there is. It is nothing, absolutely nothing, compared to the benefits of our heavenly citizenship. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You can't believe how many people have the misconception that our eternal existence is some kind of vague, cloudy thing where we just kind of hang there forever. No, it's pleasures forevermore. What will those pleasures be? I have no idea. <laughs> I think they will be so fantastic that we could not even conceive of them now, so God doesn't waste time trying to describe them to us. But they will be ours. For our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who only dress up like servants of righteousness might think they're going to get there because they do enough good things. We're more realistic. <laughs> we know we don't have a chance on our own. We need a Savior. Savior. The word is used only twice in the whole book of Acts. Once, each quoting Peter and then Paul. Both times to Jewish leaders and teachers who then want to kill them. <laughs> Isn't it strange? Paul and Peter get excited because they have a Savior and the Jewish rulers want to kill them for saying it. Why? Why this incredibly different reaction to the same word, to the same concept? Consider that Paul uses the word Savior only once in Ephesians and once here in Philippians, but in his shorter letters to pastors Timothy and Titus, he uses it ten times. <laughs> wow, what a difference. Well, why? Because Paul knows these men and he knows how much they know about their Savior, how deep their theological understanding is, how intimately they know their Savior. So he knows how excited they will be just to hear the word. You see, those most intimate with Christ in the early church reveled in Christ as their Savior. And today too. So why does the very word Savior Raise the hackles of the enemies of the cross. The problem with Jesus being the Savior is that that means someone needs to be saved. People who are enemies of the cross don't want to admit their guilt. There are many others, but our example today for, the, for today is the Mormon faith. They teach that Jesus' death on the cross has nothing to do with our salvation. Nothing. His death, they say, only shows us how to do it and really, there was no need for him to die. We could have figured it all out on our own. He just figured it out before us. Remember, they think we are going to be gods just like Jesus. I mean, really, we're all good people here. People are basically good. They just need to exercise their good nature. Lies. This is a lie from Satan dressed up to look like righteousness. We are all guilty. The question is, what do we do with the guilt? Deny it and pretend we're okay? Or accept help to escape its consequences? But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. What is the end for us? These weak bodies whose very nature leads to sin will be transformed. Now, since we've been picking on Mormonism, let's examine that belief system once more. 
They also say true believers will have glorified bodies. But what do they mean? Instead of being a little strong, they'll be like Superman. Seriously, that's their, that's their theology. Instead of owning a little land, they'll own a whole planet. Instead of one wife, a guy can have a hundred. I can't manage one, so why would I want a hundred? <laughs> Instead of a dozen kids, one glorified man can sire thousands. You see, they use the word heaven, but their minds are set on earthly things. The same things we have now, only more of it. More of exactly the same things we have now, like sets of rules. Are the rules evil? Not necessarily. But when you think living by the rules will save you, then you think you don't need a Savior. You can become your own Savior. That's exactly what Mormon teachers say. You become a God. You don't need anyone else to be your Savior. You save yourself. Now, it is true that we won't need a Savior there, but that's because we'll have a Savior there, one who has already saved us. It'll be a done deal. We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. There is one Savior. It all ties together in Christ. The power that he has to transform us is the same power that allows him to subject all to himself. From where does this power come? Well, of course, he's God. He has all power. But there's more than that because he has another nature as well because he also earned this power because he took on human flesh and allowed himself to be sacrificed. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. He saved us, and we await his return. We want to praise him. But on that day... Every person will recognize the truth. Even the enemies of the cross will one day bow to Jesus Christ. People of God, there is power in Jesus Christ. And we must not forget that. We have a real hope that leads to real life. Listen to these passages about our hope. Watch for what it is and how we should respond. The hour has come for you to awake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Salvation, that day the Savior we await, finally appears, is nearer yet for us. Let us put on the armor of light. Some might not have hope, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Our hope will come. Keep awake, eyes open, be sober, thinking clearly. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. If we are his, we will not give up doing good. So let us press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
press towards our great hope. For when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We have a great hope. So let us be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. Because according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. With this hope before us, we will be diligent to be without spot or blemish and at peace. Or, as John said after decades of contemplation, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Our hope causes us to press forward toward purity. We have a real hope for real life. So let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. Our hope, our final salvation, we must live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, I said that those six verses we read would show how we should respond to this real hope that leads to real life. And they do. But it might be more accurate to say they show how we will respond. <laughs> do we live this way? Putting on the armor of light, keeping awake and sober, not giving up doing good, steadfast, immovable, and abounding in the work of the Lord? Are we diligent in avoiding spots or blemishes and at peace? Are we living lives worthy of the good news of Christ our Savior? If we are, it will make a difference to the enemies of the cross. Note that our manner of life is a clear sign to them of their destruction. Just living as Christians should makes those enemies of the cross, those who dress up like servants of righteousness, realize they are guilty and headed for destruction and desperately in need of a Savior. Because nobody really lives by all the rules. Somewhere along the line, everyone messes up. And the enemies of the cross of Christ know it just as well as we do. And then, here we are, living like we ought to. <laughs> Worthy of the good news of Jesus Christ, and none of their rules frightens us in the least. Because we don't have to keep the rules to be saved. We have a Savior, one who will redeem us, even though we have broken the rules. So we joyously do our best to live worthy of the cross. What will the enemies of the cross do? Uh, most of them will probably say, you've ruined everything. <laughs> 
And they'll blame us for their guilt. But maybe, just maybe, a few will fall on their knees and cry out to our Savior to be their Savior. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. There are enemies of the cross of Christ, and we will have to stand firm against them. But look at what we have together. Obviously, our Savior, but look at what we can have together. Paul said, my brothers, a very strong term of affection amongst men of that day, whom I love. Paul knows what love really is, the eager willingness to give all for another whom I long for. We can and will long to see one another and all our brothers and sisters in Christ when we together stand firm thus in the Lord. My joy. We can, as people of the Savior, bring joy to one another. My crown. Paul had the wonderful task of introducing these people to Jesus Christ. True, he also got to be arrested, beat till he was bloody, thrown in jail. <laughs> and he, but then even the jailer and his whole household put their trust in Jesus as their Savior. Paul knew this was a crowning achievement in his life. What is our crown? Who is our crown? When we become family as God's children... When we love and long for one another, when we bring joy to one another, crowned with the good that we have done for each other, we can and will stand firm in the Lord. Yes, we will ruin it for the rules, people. <laughs> the ones who think they can be their own savior. But that's good news. Maybe some will hear it and realize what we have. America is no longer a Christian nation. But that's good news. In the pitch black night, one small candle can be seen half a mile away. It is true that America grows darker every day, but that's okay. God really does know what he's doing. The light's much easier to see in the dark. When we live real lives here, displaying our real hope in a Savior who will give us eternal real life in the future, those around us can easily see our salvation. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Father, we want to live as we should. We strive to live as we should. And we fail, and we try again, and you keep lifting us up. We are down, but we're not dead yet. We're still working towards you. We thank you that you give us the strength to live as we should. It's not up to us to save ourselves, because we would be lost if it was. But you sent your Son, who willingly gave himself. And because he made it through death, we know we can too. And one day, we won't just be who we are, but we will be everything we were supposed to be. All that this life only hints at will finally be ours. And it will be amazing. There will be pleasures forevermore. There will be joy beyond anything we can understand now. So we want to live today like that's our future. 
Help us to remember to do that so that other people will see it and they'll say, why do you live the life you live? And maybe we'll get a chance to explain it to them. Thank you, Father, for all you do for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message, First for Dead Living Hope Church of Westport. Please feel free to visit us online at southbeachhope.org where you can download full transcripts of this and other sermons as well as other helpful files. We are so pleased that we can worship with you via sermon.net but hopefully we'll someday be able to praise God together in person. If not in Westport, at least in the rapture.